Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ndaw Mandela. Please enjoy Mandela on Leadership. We will be talking to global leaders across the world, talking about the moral leadership and what inspires and keeps them going to become the leaders that they are today. We will be talking to leaders in the corporate sector, entrepreneurs, artists, people from all different walks of life, and they'll be sharing with us what is their inspiration to becoming great leaders of today. Welcome everybody to my first podcast. Today we have a very special guest, ladies and gentlemen, a female powerhouse, a lady that I respect very much, coming all the way from Minnesota, Minneapolis. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Laisha Ward. Laisha Ward is an accomplished C-suite executive with 30 years of leadership experience at Target. She has demonstrated an ability to lead through rapid change, solve problems, build innovative community programs, and collaborate with key stakeholders to support organizational goals and objectives. In 2017, Ms. Ward was named Executive Vice President, Chief External Engagement Officer, overseeing Target's enterprise-wide approach to engage and deepen relationship with cross-sector stakeholders to drive positive business and community impact. She has a long resume, ladies and gentlemen, so I will not go through it, but today will not just be a typical podcast. It will be a conversation that I will be having with my sister, Laisha. We want you to be part of this conversation so we get to know both Laisha and myself as we go along. Ah, fabulous, Ndaba. Once again, it's such an extraordinary honor to be in conversation with you and help launch your podcast. So thank you for the opportunity. Let's get started. I've read your book, Going to the Mountain, Life Lessons from My Grandfather. I enjoyed it so much that I also listened to the audiobook version. Everyone knows Nelson Mandela as this powerful and inspiring figure. What are the big lessons that he taught you? For me, the big lessons that really come out of my grandfather and growing up with him and having that experience is what is true leadership about? Leadership is not about being the best. Leadership is not about being number one. Leadership is about service. It's about being a voice for those who don't have a voice, standing up for those people who are marginalized in society, who are disenfranchised, people that don't have opportunity. Now, everywhere you go around the world, there are people who live in lower socioeconomic status. And so it is important that in whichever community that we reside in, that we're able to do something outside of ourselves and do something for those who are really in need. For me, that was one of the, the, the real essence of leadership. But at the same time, as much as you have to be passionate about the people that you work with and the issues that you tackle, it's important for you to have compassion. You see, Nelson Mandela was a man who treated everybody with dignity and respect. I remember he would, you know, we would be 
getting guests from all over the world, whether it was Bill Clinton, whether it's you know Prince Harry, um, whether it's Lennox Lewis. My grandfather treated those very special celebrities and leaders of society the same way he treated Mama Oli who cooked for us. The same way he treated the driver, Mike, and Albert who cleaned the garden. Because Nelson Mandela understands that regardless of your history or gender, we all have the potential to achieve greatness. What incredible lessons. Uh, so powerful to hear you speak about leadership is about service and the importance of compassion and treating everyone with dignity and respect and that all of us have potential. Your grandfather taught you so many incredible lessons. How did those lessons and others inspire you to start this podcast series? I think it's important looking at the very time that we're living in. You know, we are challenged with the COVID virus. We now have the Black Lives Matter movement that grew not only in America, but across the entire world. We had societies that had minimum amount of black people standing up in solidarity with the black people in America and what they're going through. Now that shows to me that humanity has started to move or has been moving in the right direction. Injustice in America is an injustice to all people of color across the world. And so when we look at these uh, movements, it is important to understand that we do not have to wait for a prime minister, a president, a professor, a teacher. We have the responsibility that we have to act. God has given us a brain, hands talk, we can talk, right? We can listen. And thank God we have the opportunity to get good education so we can apply our minds to these very difficult issues and challenges that we face. And I think it's important that any leader who calls himself a leader or wants to be recognized as a leader needs to make sure that they include the young people in any and every challenge that they seek to tackle. If you are not including young people in these conversations, when you're tackling these challenges and issues of society, then who are you actually doing it for? Because we are working to make the world a better place for tomorrow. So for me, this is the critical thing that we recognize that we are leaders in our own right, in our home, in our community. And so it is important to empower people to be able to lead themselves, to choose themselves, uh, what kind of environment and what kind of world they want to live in. And we have to encourage young people to step up because when you look at politics today, the people are very old, not just in America, not just, but across the world here in, 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 in Africa too. So how are we you know, addressing these challenges when we don't have the young voice that's going to actually determine what tomorrow brings? A powerful response, Ndaba. You know, this podcast is a new adventure for you. And I'm curious to hear you say more about what you're hoping your listeners will get out of these episodes, certainly from 
our conversation, it sounds like one of the things you're hoping that we get out of it is that we're all leaders, uh, in particular, the young people, so that they see a vision for leadership that includes them. But what other things are you hoping that your listeners will get out of these episodes? I want everybody that's tuning in when they've finished listening to a podcast to feel inspired. I want people to feel the fire burning inside of them to say that enough is enough. I cannot take this. Something has to be done and I am the one who's going to do it. I want to inspire people to become the change that we seek. I want people to come together to share their knowledge, to share their experiences, so that we try not to repeat the mistakes of the past. I want young people to understand that there is more power in working together through unity than there is in working alone. As the old African idiom says, if you wanna go fast, you go alone, but if you wanna go far, you go together. Oh, I love, 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 love that saying. You know, and it's also phenomenal that you're designing these episodes with the listener at the center of the experience in a way that really helps them listen and learn and then apply those learnings. It would be great for you to share with us some of the other initiatives that you're involved in, like the Mandela Institute for Humanity or the work that you're doing with young leaders. You speak so passionately about the importance of young leaders and their voices and their actions. Say more about that. So here in South Africa, we started an organization 10 years ago called Africa Rising. With this organization, our goal is simply to be a catalyst in inspiring the next generation to be at the forefront of Africa's development. We are tired of multinational corporations coming in to our country and taking the value out. So we decided that it is time we try to empower young people with skills so that they can be able to ultimately break the cycle of poverty that exists here at home. What we have done, we have taken over 200 young people in high school, mainly in grade eight, nine, and 10, through uh, computer programming, as well as computer coding classes. We have done career guidance, uh, where we partnered with a number of different organizations, including the Air Force of South Africa, where it was a black pilot. They came and landed a chopper in our village. And of course, you can imagine how excited the kids were, some of them seeing a chopper for the very first time. And the, the black pilot came and told them about how he ended up you know, becoming a pilot. Of course, promoting maths and science. Um, and so we have also done some HIV work as well, where we try to get young people to understand the importance of using protection every time they engage in sex, but also making sure that they know their status so that they can be able, if they are positive, treat themselves, but of course, make sure that they don't transmit this disease to other people. Now, because a lot of the time, all of the work that we do is mainly dependent on the different partnerships so that we can mobilize resources, a lot of these companies headquartered in America. 
And so we then decided it's time that we establish at presence an organization in America. And that one is called the Mandela Institute for Humanity because all our work really is trying to create space for people to better humanity in one way or another. And our key focus is here is really, again, fighting HIV AIDS, but leadership. Leadership, ladies and gentlemen, is something that I believe we have a crisis of here in the world. You know, and Daba, is there a level of added pressure or responsibility you feel being the grandson of someone who is so respected and well-known on the world stage? Well, I believe there is pressure, of course. Um, you know, the old man did such a great job that people are looking to see who's the next Mandela, who's the next one to step up. And of course, you know, through the work that I've done, people want me to step up to that position. So I believe, you know, we need to step up, not just me, not myself, but everybody needs to step up. Um, because I've obviously lived with my grandfather growing up since about the age of 11, 12, I'm used to the pressure. And my grandfather never pushed me to move in any one direction. He really pushed for us to get a good education, which was the most important thing. Because Mandela believes that no leader can be a good leader if you do not have education. That said, um, for me, it's really, I don't have the pressure anymore because I know what needs to be done. So it's really about preparing myself, start moving in the right direction to prepare myself for when the time comes, which is pretty soon, when we have to move to try and make sure that we empower the next generation of leaders. And I think I'm the good man for the job. That's phenomenal. You know, I wonder if your listeners realize that when you refer to the old man, you're referring with great love, respect, and adoration to your grandfather, Nelson Mandela. Perhaps you can share with all of us how you started calling him the old man and what that means to you. Well, for me, the old man really, like you said, I say it with love and admiration. For us, old man represents a man that is full of wisdom, a man that has come to peace with himself, who he is, and what he has done in the world. Um, and so for us, he was always a great resource to guide us whenever we are stuck and we need some advice, um, but also, a man who can tell you a story and laugh at himself and laugh at him growing up in the mountain and the different experiences and share those with us. So really the old man for us is somebody that's the head of the family who makes sure everybody is protected, but also has the tools they need in order to thrive in the world. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, just such love and respect for our elders and our ancestors in a way that allows us to live our lives aligned with purpose uh, and ensure that the next generation is able to do the same. So really appreciate you sharing that perspective. 
Grace, I have some questions for you, if you don't mind. Okay, we're going to flip the switch here. That's right. That's right. It's a conversation after all. Absolutely. Now, Leisha, we have both faced being in an environment during an important moment in history, or as I like to say, being in the fire. For me, it was living in Soweto, Johannesburg during apartheid. During that time, growing up with my grandfather, I saw firsthand the outcry and change happening. For you, Leisha, you are living in Minneapolis, the epicenter of civil uprising that is occurring worldwide. After the murder of George Floyd, I would love for us to discuss what it felt like living in the midst of a historical movement and watching them unfold. You know, Ndaba, it's been really powerful to live during this historical movement. As a black woman, I initially struggled with what to say and how to process the tragic murder of George Floyd, which was on top of compounding trauma from the deaths of Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and so many others, as well as longstanding racism and discrimination that have existed in this country for centuries. Being here in Minneapolis where George Floyd was murdered does feel like being in the fire as you described it. It's incredibly intense and my emotions have ranged from sadness and anger to fear and exhaustion to determination focused on the fight for racial equity and social justice, right? Like so many others in Minneapolis, around the country and even the world, there's an awakening, a renewed commitment to ending systemic racism and the structures that support and reinforce inequity, whether that's in jobs, education, housing, healthcare, or in police reform in the criminal justice system. This is an opportunity to turn our anguish into real action. We're at an important inflection point that's really growing and there is a growing support for the importance of black lives. And that gives us reason for hope. And, and while we need hope, we also need a strategy and very specific action steps to ensure that our good intentions lead to measurable outcomes. As you know, creating racial equity requires a long-term commitment, a will to stay with a hard and often very uncomfortable work. We gotta do the work. And no one person, company, or organization can solve these problems alone. We all have a role to play. And I believe that it begins with our personal actions, right? In our network of family, friends, and colleagues, whether that's conversations around the dinner table or, or calling somebody out when they say something or do something that's racist. The act of being anti-racist is a conscious effort to work against all aspects of racism. And it challenges us to think about our own personal behaviors. I've been very blessed and fortunate to have had the opportunity to visit South Africa on three separate occasions. And I do find a deep connection between our struggles for change in the U.S. and South Africa. And I find so much inspiration from the lessons and legacy of your grandfather, Nelson Mandela, and so many other freedom fighters who persevered and continue to work towards healing and progress. The work is not done. And as my mentor, Coretta Scott King, the wife of the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. often said, struggle is a never ending process. Freedom is never really won. You earn it and win it in every generation. 
Laisha, I must say, I love that quote uh, from Coretta Scott King. That's one of my favorite quotes that I actually use uh, quite frequently, actually. And uh, I just, you know, you put it so well. We can no longer turn the other cheek, ladies and gentlemen, and, you know, turn a blind eye. This is the time to call people out. And it begins in your own home. It begins at home. So thank you. Thank you very much, Laisha. Tell me. How did you view your role personally and professionally over the last four months, especially with being so proximate? What was the biggest lesson you learned that you think other leaders can apply to engaging the communities they are looking to serve? Wow, that's a great question. Um, my role has been to help my extended family, my community, and my company target, and quite frankly, myself. Heal. Heal through listening, learning, and co-creating solutions that allow us to rebuild and recover from the unprecedented impact of the trauma caused by the pandemic and ongoing racism. And the biggest lesson for me has been the importance, the necessity of continuing to lead with purpose. Purpose is your why, uh, your reason for being, and it defines the impact you want to make at work and in the world. And at Target, our purpose and our values have guided our decisions throughout these challenging times, from ensuring the safety and well-being of our team, our guests, and our communities during the pandemic, to building on our longstanding commitment to diversity and inclusion by addressing racial inequity in the Black community. And to that end, we've created our Racial Equity Action and Change Committee that we call REACH, which is how Target will use our size, our scale, and our resources to help end systemic racism in this country and create racial equity for Black Americans. Now, the REACH strategy is a call to action, a catalyst for the entire Target team and our broad ecosystem of partners to make this more than a moment, to make it a movement for real change. And again, we have to do the work and we have to hold ourselves accountable for outcomes. I'm also buoyed by targets efforts that are aligned with my personal purpose, which is to be of service to others with a focus on women, people of color, and other underrepresented communities, including the black community that I proudly represent. Uh, it reminds me of what you and I talked about in the beginning of our conversation, the importance of using our voice uh, for those who don't have a voice, the importance of you know, providing an opportunity to serve those who are marginalized and not just serve them, but to serve alongside them because we are all leaders and all want to be a part of the solution. And as I think about the opportunity that lies ahead for all of us, um, you know, I, I hear a lot of people talking about a desire to have things go back to normal. Um, you know, quite frankly, I, I understand that question, whether that's a result of the pandemic or racial uprisings, but I don't want things to go back to normal. Because normal in this country has not been good for black and brown people. What we need is a new normal, one that is more equitable and more just for everyone. Uh, now, Ndaba, I would like to ask you uh, the questions that you pose to me. Does that sound okay? Sure. Now, what's your response to having lived in the fire, living in the midst of historical moments and watching them unfold? You know, for me, or the way I look at it, is 
Yes, this is a historic moment and the movement is growing, but what is my role in this situation? How am I adding value? How am I mobilizing? And what is the action or the strategy that we are going to take to make sure that we achieve whatever goal that we are trying to achieve? For America, you talk about police brutality, you talk about reforming the justice system. In South Africa, we talk about fighting poverty, fighting the corruption that is happening in our society. So for me, it's always from a point of departure of how I can make sure that I'm focused in what I'm doing, but we are moving together in unison. Communication becomes very important during these times. The right messages needs to be sent out there and young people need to have the opportunity to participate because the one thing I'm worried about, one day in the future, when my son is 18 or 21, and they'll ask me, Dad, when this was happening, Black Lives Matter and the streets were burning, where were you? What were you doing? And I want to be able to answer that question with pride and dignity and even inspire him to say, wow, Dad, that's what you did? Man, I need to do something as well. So that's where I come from. The fire needs to always be lit. And there's a great saying that says, as we consciously light our own fire, we subconsciously give others the courage to light their own fire. So we have to keep that fire burning at all times. Oh, thank you for that. Incredibly inspiring. Makes me think of that song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And when we let our light shine, we let other light shine in the world as well. And Daba, let me ask you, what was the biggest lesson you learned that you think other leaders can apply to engaging the communities they're looking to serve? I think the most important thing is when you're engaging with people is that you're engaging properly. And that is to listen. You must listen. A lot of people don't listen. Go and understand the community and the people that you're serving. So for me, the first step is really just to listen and truly understand the people and the issues that they're facing. Don't come there with your preconceived notions of how you want to bring in your psychiatrist friend, Sally, or you want to bring in the engineer, Bob. No, go first and listen to the community that you want to serve in order for you to be able to serve them better. And make sure that that community are the very stakeholders. So they themselves are involved in coming up with the solutions to those challenges on a very practical level. And I've seen that a lot of the time, these leaders come there wanting to be heroes, wanting to be worshipped. No, it is critical and vital that the very same community are part and parcel of your strategy and even your implementation. So those are the two most critical things for me, that there is stakeholder participation from the very same community that we serve.
That is phenomenal advice. The importance of listening, learning, and co-creating with the community most heavily impacted, um, not coming in and trying to be a savior, uh, but to really listen to learn versus listening to fix or win is incredibly powerful advice. And ensuring then that those solutions that are uh, led by the community are sustained by the community as well, which allows the respect and dignity that that community deserves to really truly be felt uh, and continued uh, along the journey. Powerful words. Thank you, Wendava. This has been a gift, um, an opportunity to be part of your vision, to uplift and inspire all of us to make a difference. And I'm just grateful for this time with you. And I think your listeners will be inspired not only by this conversation, but the conversations to come as a part of, part of your new podcast series. So thank you very much. Salubona. I see you. Thank you, Rachel. Have a lovely day. <laughs>